0: In recognition of President's Weekend, this is an encore conversation with Susan Eisenhower about her book, How Ike Led, the Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Few people have made decisions as momentous as Dwight David Eisenhower. From D-Day to Little Rock, from the Korean War to Cold War crises, Ike relied on a core set of principles. In her warm and illuminating book, Susan Eisenhower reveals how Ike led as a strategic leader, relying on a rigorous pursuit of the facts for decision-making. After making a decision, he made himself accountable for it, recognizing that personal responsibility is the bedrock of sound principles. Former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates said Susan Eisenhower's How Ike Led distills from her grandfather's life the enduring qualities of successful leadership. Those qualities, dedication to duty, sincerity, fairness, optimism, humility, patience and restraint, moderation and accountability are illuminated through anecdotes both moving and entertaining from Dwight Eisenhower's decades of unparalleled service to America. Susan Eisenhower is one of President Dwight D. Eisenhower's four grandchildren. She is a consultant and author and a Washington, D.C.-based policy strategist with many decades of work on national security issues. She lectures widely on such topics, including strategic leadership. Susan Eisenhower, welcome to Reader's Corner.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: Well, this has just been such an impressive book for me to read. I can't wait uh, to share it with my friends. And of course, that's exactly what we're doing on this program today. The thing that got me about it is the way you've identified these great examples of the essential ingredients of leadership uh, that really ought to be required reading for anybody who's interested in in leading, whether it's the private sector, the public sector, a small organization, a large one, it's so important to stop and think about just what you've pointed out here about your grandfather. We'll obviously cover his, his presidency, but I want to start, go back to uh, his time as the general. And there are some things about leading by example that I thought were just so critical for people to know about this guy. Here he is, the Supreme Allied Commander, and he had some very interesting takes on, I'm going to give you three of them, helmets, bunkers, and the Congressional Medal of Honor. Do all three of those register?
1: <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I've got to tell you that I was um, very, very fortunate to come across the memoir of Ike's valet. Someone named um, Sergeant Mickey Macchio. And what's so brilliant about his book called Sergeant Mickey and General Ike uh, is that he was, he didn't know anything about what was happening with the war effort particularly, but he made all kinds of comments about his boss. And uh, it's a very intimate, rather charming book about uh, Ike's foibles. There's a great story. I, I couldn't put it in the book because it wasn't exactly on point about Ike being forced to wear Winston Churchill's pajamas one evening because uh, uh, Mickey forgot to pack uh, General Eisenhower's pajamas and how um, Churchill's pajamas were um, so baggy that uh, he almost strangled himself in his sleep. Um, You know, great stories like that. But uh, the, the ones that you mentioned, the leading by example, only Mickey could have told this because he was with General Eisenhower all the time. And that was, is that Ike refused Uh, for instance, to wear um, a helmet because a helmet in military circles really denotes the people who are, are at the front. And Eisenhower didn't think it was right to go around looking like the guy who was in combat when, in fact, his job was entirely different. He was the supreme commander. He was the strategic leader. He was the person who was making the big decisions. But he wasn't in harm's way in a classical sense that combat is. Uh, So he wouldn't wear helmets. Um, On a couple of occasions, his theater commanders ordered him to wear a helmet because they were really so close to the line. But you will see, I've never seen a picture of him in a helmet during that war. So that's interesting. But, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor story is rather similar. Eisenhower was uh, offered the Congressional Medal of Honor and he declined it because he said that award is specifically for people in combat. And I would not put myself in that category. I would not try and make the case that I had shown the kind of valor that those who fought did. Now, it's interesting that his old mentor from the pre-war period, Douglas MacArthur, did accept the Congressional Medal of Honor, but that shows you something about their differences in approach to leadership. And then finally, the bunkers. We have Mickey McKeo to thank for this, is that uh, Ike didn't like to go into the bunkers unless they were available for everybody. And uh, that, again, comes up later in the presidency when they're talking about bomb shelters and that type of thing. And Ike really didn't like the idea that the president of the United States would be escaping to some safe place while everyone else was left out there to hang. So those are three examples of, you know, never making propositions about your importance, Uh, in the face of those who are not given the same advantages. I also, by the way, uh, Bob, really liked the fact that, for instance, he would never allow them to show him a movie until uh, the GIs in the area had had a chance to see it first. Uh, That same kind of standing behind the people who are really uh, out there in combat and in harm's way.
0: Well, after the Allies' victory in World War II, he still had a tough job on his hands, that of moving people who were displaced, especially the victims that survived the Holocaust. And, of course, he, he, he was taken in to see the remains of, of the Holocaust, so to speak. Uh, and at one point, I'd, l- I'd love you to share the story of uh, after seeing this carnage, what he did with the village Ordruff, I think is the name of it, um, regarding the town citizens. And I, I think he might have also made sure that uh, some of the military brass uh, had a chance to see it. And I think we all know that he is the guy that is quoted as saying, I want people to see this so no one ever denies it. But please share with us that story.
1: Well, I found that rather intriguing uh, about him, that he was able to look at the most horrifying scene, be uh, speechless Unable later even to describe, using the English language, how he felt when he saw these atrocities. He, he simply couldn't, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And, and yet at the same time, he used a, uh, a notion that's called thinking in time. He was able to see that 50 years from now, that there would be people who would deny this Holocaust because of the horrific nature of what had happened there. So that night he got back to George Patton's headquarters uh, that he was visiting, and he wrote to uh, General Marshall, who was the chief of staff of the army, and said, "I want you to send as many people here as possible so that we can chronicle this, because in fifty years people say it never happened." Now, how he handled the German thing is was pretty tough too, if I may say. Um, at Ordruf, which was a subcamp of Buchenwald, some of the guards or people who were also there, the Germans who were brought into the camp, oh, we didn't know this was happening. He just simply didn't believe it. And he made the citizens of Gotha, for instance, which was very uh, close to this camp, uh, he marched into the camp and made them give the Holocaust victims a dignified burial. And I think it was so overwhelming for the mayor of Gotha that he and his wife um, went home and committed suicide. Uh, But Ike ordered that anybody um, near these places, the towns around these um, uh, sites of the Holocaust, uh, those townspeople were were marched to the camp to see what had been done in their names.
0: Well, let's talk about his moving from general to president. Um, I found it very interesting and didn't really realize how nonpartisan, maybe you want to call it bipartisan, he was bipartisan in the sense that both Democrats and Republicans were after him to run for president, um, I wonder if you could just share with us how this all comes about, including his decision to run and what it was based on, the role that Robert Taft plays in this, who was at the time, of course, the, the more conservative option for the presidency in, in, in 1952. And uh, clearly, I think we have we have here a case of a general uh, and another thing you might want to comment is that in those days, anyway, generals really didn't vote, so it wasn't so easy to uh, identify what their partisan background was. And I think one of your chapters is called "He He, he Doesn't Have Any Politics." <laughs> you can take it <laughs> well, from there.
1: Was wasn't that a um, an absolutely uh, wonderful? <laughs> um, uh, it's a wonderful moment because Sherman Adams, who is the governor of New Hampshire, wanted desperately to put Eisenhower uh, on the New Hampshire primary ballot going into 1952. This is after Eisenhower's already been courted for about six years by uh, Republicans and Democrats. And every time one party or the other thought they were going to lose the election, uh, they would go and plead with General Eisenhower uh, to run. And part of the reason was uh he was extraordinarily well-known, of course, because of the war. Uh, he had a, a great smile and, uh, you know, a tremendous uh, personal presence and uh, a sense of trustworthiness that uh, his GIs understood. So he was really uh, being courted like mad, but uh, Governor uh, Adams was a little bit worried that he might be uh, encouraging general eisenhower to run not knowing what political party he was from so he wrote the county clerk in uh, abilene kansas and uh, asked what political party general eisenhower was registered with and the county clerk wrote back this long very uh amusing letter because they the typos are everywhere and um the clerk, clerk can't help saying that you know General Eisenhower is probably not like his father, who was a Republican, but this and that. And, you know, sons never do what they're supposed to do, etc. This is about General Eisenhower, he's talking. Anyway, the long and the short of it is he ends by saying, I don't think he's got any politics. Well, uh, I really tried to make the case in this book that uh, he worked with all sides. As a matter of fact, in his first term, he was struggling to bring the uh, Republican Party into the 20th century, and I, I'm not saying that in a disrespectful way, but the Republicans had been out of power uh, since the Great Depression and Herbert Hoover's presidency. So 20 years is a long time. There was a, very, uh, there was a sense that there was a real danger to a two-party system in our country if the Republicans didn't find some way to revitalize the system. Now, here's the problem. The GOP uh, was uh, predominantly a party of isolationists. And uh, General Eisenhower understood perfectly well after World War II that we could never do what we did during the interwar period, which was to pack our bags and come home. Uh, that with the dangers of an expansionist communist ideology, simply speaking, America was going to have to stay engaged in the world. So when it was clear that Senator Taft, who was kind of Mr. Republican, he was, you know, really the, the, the powerhouse within the Republican uh, Party, when it was clear that Taft was not going to support the establishment of NATO, uh, I should say the establishment of the military side of NATO, that he did not support the UN, that he did not support the Marshall Plan even. Uh, Ike decided that his duty probably lay um, in running for president. And, and by the way, Bob, if I could add one more thing, people don't realize that he had to give up his military commission in order to make that run for president, uh, thereby jeopardizing his entire uh, entire retirement should he lose that election. So it was a big personal risk for him at the same time.
0: You're listening to Susan Eisenhower. She's the author of How Ike Led, the Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions. Let's talk about one of those decisions, and that's the veto of the Natural Gas Act. Now that (laughs) Is clearly not the most important piece of legislation in Eisenhower's eight years in office. But um, as a guy who comes out of uh, Illinois politics from the eighties and the nineties, uh, I was absolutely fascinated with this because uh, I grew up all around what is called you know partisanship of one kind or another and log rolling, and you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. And uh, the president here gets this bill, the Natural Gas Act. Why the veto?
1: Well, the veto, I I must say, Bob, this was so much fun to discover. And I learned so much about Dwight Eisenhower in writing this book. But I love this one because he he only vetoed two things while he was president of the United States. This was one of them. This was a bill um, that would have changed the relationship, uh, the government's relationship to uh, setting prices in the oil and gas area. And he supported the bill that was brought to him for a signature. Uh, But then uh, slowly but surely, some information came out about how the bill was lobbied. And Ike thought that the tactics used by the oil and gas industry lobbyists was so outrageous that he said he simply could not sign that bill. Because he was worried that if he signed a bill like that, it would be like saying to the American public, it's okay if our government runs like this. Uh, I believed at the end of the day the most important thing for the government well, among the most important things the government had to do was to act and in fact lead in a way that would inspire confidence between its citizens and um, you know government action itself so that one got vetoed it was never brought up for another vote and so there we are but um, he kept a diary you probably remember from reading this book and He had nothing but scornful things to say about the behavior of those lobbyists, and he just wasn't going to have it.
0: (laughs) And I don't know the specifics, but it's almost like the cost of doing business these days. And I just think it's a remarkable contrast uh, for a president to take that that particular position. Plus, I don't think he wanted he wouldn't serve on corporate boards, would he? And and the the presidency of Columbia University that he eventually took, uh, that was a great opportunity for him to avoid the uh, interactions with corporate boards. What did he consider that a conflict of interest of some kind?
1: No, I think he felt that um, that it was inappropriate. This is how he put it, that he thought it was inappropriate for a man who'd had the honor of serving his government uh, in war time to profit from it in any way. So he didn't take, uh, he never took a speaking honorarium either, uh, no corporate boards, nothing. Um, and there actually, there wasn't room for it in this book. But at one point, somebody wanted to come do a documentary of his life, a kind of heroic thing. And um, Ike said, um, you know, well, we'll talk about it, but don't even uh, bring this proposal to me unless uh, the beneficiary, uh, you know, are, uh, I think it was Kansas State University. He wanted that money dedicated to, it. but honestly, uh, that documentary was never going to happen because Ike had so many caveats on it. It was crazy. Uh, He just didn't feel it was appropriate, and uh, I think in this, you know, I missed his strong convictions as well, because uh, today there's just, I mean, there's just so much money that sloshes around, uh, not just for uh, former presidents, but also for people who have run for the presidency, Um, and some might even think that this is why we get nine or ten um, you know, aspirants um, every election cycle because the uh, publicity actually raises their speaking fees.
0: <laughs> you know, the thing that I found fascinating about uh, Eisenhower's lessons on decision making is what an incredible contrast it is to decision making by Twitter rants, which we've been subjected to for the last four years. And you give an example of the solarium project, which I thought was such a perfect way to show how in most companies across America or in government that we've respected for so long, we would just expect the approach that this general and now President Eisenhower took to come at a conclusion. I wonder if you could share just how he went about that.
1: Well, first of all, I think what's important to note here, and I hope I accomplished this in the book, was to demonstrate to people who read maybe about Ike the General, or then another book on Ike the President, uh, that actually Dwight Eisenhower was the same person. And, and the reason I say that is that it's important to remember that he brings his mentality, that he uh, honed during the war to the presidency. And in that, there was no more dramatic example of having to make consequential decisions practically on the fly now, obviously, uh, D-Day was well planned and the rest of it. But once you get into combat, you know you're you have really no exposure to reliable, ample evidence of what's going on. So you have to begin to um, create for yourself. I think this is what he did was a, a way to make decisions. And one one thing that he did was to understand that everybody's got a piece of this puzzle, and he found that it was critically important to be surrounded by people, to um, encourage those people to speak their minds. He wanted no yes men around. He wanted to make sure that everybody was giving him their perspective. And he tried to get as much diversity as he could into um, that decision-making process. And Solarium is an excellent example of that where after Stalin's death uh, in March of 1953, this Solarium project is a, is a three-team debate about what America's strategy should be after the death of the absolute dictator in the Soviet Union um, and also the advent of nuclear weapons. So, but, and I think this is the most important line that comes to us from one of his aides. He said that Eisenhower did not believe that all wisdom resided in the mind of one man. In other words, he had to have as much inputs as possible. And one final thing is he never made a consequential decision in a noisy room. He always took himself off to run through uh, the strategic uh, pillars of any decision and to uh, make that decision quietly without worrying about uh, responding to the last person who talked to him.
0: You're listening to Susan Eisenhower. She's the author of How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions. He was criticized, Eisenhower was criticized for both uh, perhaps too timid an approach to civil rights, and also when it came to the McCarthy uh, issue, uh, he was criticized for standing back for too long. I wonder if you would comment, as you do in your book, on both of those, and uh, especially on the civil rights thing. I mean, even after he was president, he called Kennedy, I think, to see if he could help out with Kennedy's civil rights bill. So have at it.
1: Well, yeah, no, that, uh, that's, that's a remarkable thing. I'm not so sure how much of that we've seen in modern times, so we might start finding that our country's going to pull together here in the face of a very difficult time. Um, in any case, I'm glad you mentioned both civil rights and Joseph McCarthy kind of in the same breath, because I think uh, it occurred to me, actually, isn't this always the way, after the book was written, That what I was really saying is that, among other things, Ike was a master of knowing what he controlled and what he didn't control. And so he had a variety of different strategies for dealing with a variety of different circumstances. But if you don't have control of something, and I guess, again, this is a military mind thinking this through. If you don't have control of something, then, you know, a frontal attack is not going to work. And so you have to go around more indirectly to accomplish your objectives. In the case of Joseph McCarthy, the president of the United States, representing a co-equal branch of government, did not control a sitting senator. It was the Senate of the United States that controlled that sitting senator. So Eisenhower absolutely disregarded uh, all pleas that he should take on Senator McCarthy directly, because in his mind he would be offending the senators who support uh, Senator McCarthy and that they would somehow be unwilling to censure the senator uh, because they would turn into even more ardent offenders if their man was criticized. Um, And a lot of people thought this was wrong, that he was being silent. He was being indifferent. He was being inactive. But what he was really doing was working in a very dedicated way behind the scenes to eventually convince Uh, those senators that uh, not only was Senator McCarthy toxic, but downright dangerous to the future of our democracy. Um, In the case of civil rights, again, you have the same principle, but here it's interesting because he actually did control a number of things. And what he controlled, of course, was the federal government um, uh, from the executive branch. And so there he um, uh, put together a slate of uh, desegregationists in the court system. Uh, he desegregated, um, finished uh, the lion's share of the work on desegregating the military and military schools. Uh, he appoints five Supreme Court justices, if you can believe that in his time, and uh, sought both a, uh, an ideological balance, but the one thing he would not accept of those judges that, uh, was that any one of them be uh, a segregationist. And so he took the things he could control, including um, federal contracting, he desegregated that, it goes on like that. To create a, I call it, establish a beachhead um, so that the civil rights movement cannot back up and, I should say, regress. Uh, finally, the first um, Civil Rights Act of, since Reconstruction was uh, his bill in 1957, um, and uh, later another in 1960. So he was committed to civil rights all right. Not only did he support Kennedy's bill, but I found out after my book uh, came out that he uh, also told Senator Goldwater that uh, in that presidential bid in 64, that if he didn't support uh, the civil rights legislation that the Democrats were advancing, he would vote for Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> oh boy. So I think, um, I think he... Um, you know, he made his position quite, quite firm. The fact that he used the bully pulpit to express his belief and principles rather than he did not believe in engaging in personalities and insulting people because he said, you never know when you're going to need them uh, to get a piece of legislation passed.
0: And of course he appointed Earl Warren as chief justice, who turned out to be one of the most uh, dominant Supreme Court justices in recent history, including, of course, the Brown versus the Board of Education at Topeka, which I think you mentioned.
1: How'd you like that idea of trying to uh, make sure that the Supreme Court was ideologically balanced? That was the other thing I was really quite startled to discover in my research, is that in 1956, during uh, a presidential campaign, uh, a vacancy becomes available, and Eisenhower says to his Attorney General Herbert Brownell Uh, please go out and find me a Democrat uh, because I want to take this opportunity to add some more um, diversity of views to the Supreme Court. And he believed that that was really important because the Supreme Court was also a co-equal branch of government and a non-elected branch of government. So their diversity was critical for assuring um, that the law was uh, interpreted as law, not as um as political uh as a you know a, and not in political terms, I should put it that way
0: right, and I'm afraid that uh is long gone from our practice of politics today let's hope someday it could come back. I want to get on a lighter note just for a minute because I thought of something when you mentioned Sherman Adams earlier, uh his chief of staff, the former governor, what was it New Hampshire uh, yes. Uh, he's sitting in his office one day, and of course, your your grandfather was a painter, and um, he's sitting in his office one day and gets this phone call. You know where I'm going with this?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I mean, I, I just imagine the chief of staff of the president of the United States sitting there and figuring that he's going to get a question about a major policy issue confronting the uh, president, and he says... <laughs>
1: President Eisenhower says to his chief of staff, uh, Sherman, what color are your eyes? And, <laughs> you know, I, I probably Adams wore glasses or something, or maybe he had hazel eyes, I don't know. But Ike was painting his portrait and did not want to get the eye color wrong. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, this is really pretty funny. Um, actually, his aides uh, had some funny stories around his uh, painting. But, you know, I think the most important thing is for people who... Have uh, extraordinary responsibilities, especially uh, over some very tough and complex issues, need to have a way to rest their minds and for Ike um, it was going out and um, hitting the living daylights out of a golf ball and or um, sitting behind a, an easel and painting by the way Bob I don't think he ever regarded himself as any kind of a painter to speak of, but he did give those paintings away to uh, the portraits he did of his colleagues—they all received those as gifts, and it was just a nice thing he did for people. But basically, it helped him a lot. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, his humility is just through and through. Your book, and since you mentioned the paintings, there's this guy Cohen who's who's talking to him at some kind of a showing of of Eisenhower's art, and he made some comment that that um, apparently was taken by. The president is not the most complimentary thing to say about someone's painting, and he and, and Eisenhower turned to him and said something like, "Hey, you know, don't think I don't get this. This painting would be worthless if I wasn't president."
1: <laughs> exactly right. Uh, the reporter Richard Cohen said to him, "Now, General, what would be the significance of this?" <laughs> right, and and then uh, because actually, I should I should clarify that. You know, many people don't realize that after his two-term presidency, by the way, which he called the middle way, uh, after his two-term presidency, um, President Kennedy called him and said, uh, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything you want on your way out the door? And um, President Eisenhower said, there's only one thing I want, and that is that I would like to have my uh, army commission reinstated. So actually, Dwight Eisenhower died as General Eisenhower, in his uniform, and um, and not uh, President Eisenhower, in the sense that he wished to be called General Eisenhower, it puts a kind of capstone to his life and underscores that he really did feel that he was in the White House to do his duty.
0: Time for one more question, and you just reminded me of the perfect close for this interview. You have such a beautiful and poignant conclusion to your book, where you're telling the reader about the general's final ride home on the train to Abilene where he will be buried. And it's the middle of the night and you cite someone in the field.
1: Well, I have to, I have to tell you, Bob, this is so etched in my brain that I could close my eyes and still uh, reconstruct the entire scene. Uh, But after the uh, state funeral, uh, Ike's uh, body, you know, the casket was put on, uh, to in into a train car with a military honor guard and there was a flag draped over the train. The train was going very slowly. I think I, I could probably double check this, but I think it, it certainly felt like two days uh, to get out to Kansas because it was going very slowly and it stopped in all the towns along uh, this train route. Uh, but one night of that train trip, I wasn't sleeping very well anyway and...